There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. I'm looking forward to a lively and enlightening conversation with today's guest, Sylvie Legere Ricketts. Sylvie is a visionary and philanthropist who is laser focused on developing innovative solutions that unite people for the common good and advance the next generation of female change makers. Her 20 years of experience in technology, process, and change management with Fortune 500 companies helped shape her vision and strategy to build organizations and movements that ignite potential in others. Sylvia Legere Ricketts, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, no, Chris. Th- no, thanks for your time. Sylvia is a native of Quebec, Canada, and a naturalized U.S. citizen. She's a member of the Ricketts family, which founded the brokerage firm TD Ameritrade in the early 1970s, and today owns the Chicago Cubs. She co-founded the Policy Circle in 2015, which is a forum for women to be informed about the impact of public policy and take ownership of solutions to the issues facing their communities. She also is an investor in technology ventures and local businesses and serves on the board of the Chicago Cubs Charities and the Bradley Impact Fund. So, Sylvie, we'll get to those topics much more, but I'd like to start north of the border as you were growing up. Your dad ran for mayor in your city, won and served for a decade. You spent quite a bit of time with him on the campaign trail and he was doing his, while he was doing his job in office. How those experience, experiences help to change who you are today? Well, thanks, Chris, for the question. You know, um, I'm from uh, a town called Gatineau in uh, Quebec. And uh, first, you know, uh, my mom also shaped who I am today. My mom was a working mom in the in the 70s. Uh, she worked all her life. And she uh, she is a curious person, always stepping out of her comfort zone. She's also really disciplined. Uh, even today in her retirement, she bikes and every, every day, bikes, kayaks, and learns the accordion. So um, constantly pushing the envelopes. But my dad was a real politician, and he was an incredible listener. He genuinely loved uh, people values what they have to say, and he's not afraid to ask questions. And I think I grew up um, around that. He was also uh, someone who really is also someone who has a great vision for the greater good and um, a unique ability to build coalitions. So uh, growing up, his vision was to build a bike path that connected uh, towns across Quebec. And uh, today, it's called La Route Verte, and it's over 3,000 miles of cyclable path, and it's featured in National Geographic as a journey of a lifetime. Uh, so, so that's the type of, you know, having a vision and, and listening, I think, are uh, things that I try to uh, aim for. So. so learning how to play the accordion and building 3,000 miles of bike path, those... Uh... Those are some achievements, I'll certainly say. <laughs> so you attended the University of Ottawa and earned a bachelor's degree in management information systems. Then you earned a master's degree in computer science from Northwestern University. Your career has largely been about technology, but you've said it was basically pure luck that you signed up for a college course that introduced you to technology. Could you share that story with us? You know, What was that course? Why did you choose it? And where did it lead you? Yeah, you know, um, back in the day, you had to kind of, well, in Canada, uh, you had to wait in line uh, to just register. And I had uh, accepted different programs. And one of them was called management. What I was accepted at business school. And as I was flipping through the, the book, I noticed a course called Management Information System and reading the paragraph, saying this was about leveraging technology to improve productivity and uh, allow businesses to do things more efficiently. And I, I was intrigued and, uh, and I just signed up for it. And it really uh, completely changed my life because I was not particularly um, strong in technology at the beginning, but I had to take computer science courses. It became part of a co-op program that allowed me to work in very different uh, businesses and, uh, and then I just pursued a career in consulting, and I discovered a love and a passion for projects that have a beginning, an end, uh, a real impact, and, uh, and, and also for process. So I really enjoyed the field, and it's one that I encourage everyone to take it, and uh, it made me also become a, an early adopter of, of new technologies. You know, I was the uh, first one to buy a Palm Pilot 
uh, the, the Blackberry, all of phone, the phone, the Garmin watch, you know, that it was called something else beforehand. But I just became just an early adopter of technology that improved lives. So what do you think you would have done had you not discovered your passion in technology? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Chris. Uh, I'm not sure. I think I would have gone in economics and I was really uh, interested in international development. How can we uh, really bring a standard of living, quality of living uh, everywhere in, in the world? Uh, so, so that would probably, um, that's, that's not, I, I think it's not, it's a promise that I made myself uh, when I was uh, 17 and I might just go there, uh, you know, it's kind of a last chapter. So. Well, we'll get into more in the conversation, but based on what you've said so far about your mother, your father, your passion to be a visionary and to make things better uh, for yourself and for people around you. I mean, that's clearly been your life's work. And so look forward to having more of that conversation. But first, could you tell us when you came to the United States and what drew you here? Uh, you know, I worked for a, uh, a international consulting firm and uh, who sponsored about a dozen employees to do a master's in computer science, typically AI, applied to learning. So through just office conversation and, and also with the help of a mentor at, in my office in Ottawa, I was uh, fortunate to be invited for an interview to apply and then to be accepted into uh, the program at Northwestern. So I drove in my little car and I drove up uh, Stony Island Road Parkway and, and uh, you know, came to Chicago to Evanston and uh, and and then really changed and took my life in just a very different uh, direction. So I came to and uh, I went to Canada. I studied here, then you know went back to uh, Toronto to to work, and I was working in BC. And uh, you know, just, it, it just opened my horizon and, and completely uh, changed um, where I live and who I became. What differences did you notice most between the United States and Canada when you arrived? And have those differences grown larger or gotten smaller since then? You know, one, one thing that always struck me, and I, I still remember like the first year that strikes me about the U.S. is how solution-minded individuals and businesses people are. The answer always seems to be, yes, let me see what we can do. Uh, and and that, we don't take that for granted. Uh, but, you know, it's it's really unique to America. And if you've traveled everywhere, you, you don't get that very often as a first answer. Uh, also, you know, I was here uh, in the early 90s, and this was the beginning of the internet, actually the year that Netscape, you know, created the first browser. So uh, it was incredible to see every week, you know, new companies like Amazon come online selling books, beauty, travel companies, even a program in my lab uh, was building a MapQuest type tool like Google Maps. Uh, and also, what's unique here, I think, and I think now it's you see that more actually in uh, in everywhere. But first, it was this real proud in starting in owning uh, a business, a private enterprise. Um, that's something that I felt is, is really uh, unique. I think it's it's more the case everywhere, but but here it doesn't matter the business. Um, people feel really proud proud of of owning and, and being an entrepreneur. You're taking me back uh, through memory lane, talking about uh, Netscape and uh, yeah, that's right. Amazon <laughs> starting you and start the internet. Stop talking this way. <laughs> the Palm Pilot. I had one of those too. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know the other big difference I have to say is healthcare. Um, I uh, it's it's really important, especially you know in the context of, of COVID. Uh, you know, on a good day in Canada, it's in Quebec, and I speak for my province. It's um, it's six months to a year to have a, an elective surgery. There's very limited outpatient uh, clinics, and uh, now after COVID, I was just listening. It will take it, it could take like 24 months, like two years, to be able to get a knee replacement or something like that. You know, and and during COVID, right now, uh, my city, which is a city of 300,000 people. Uh, next to the national capital, I've been closing at the ER due to nursing staff shortages. Uh, and that, that's that's real. Um, you know, the wait time when I came here, someone was having a back surgery. And I'm like, oh, how long is the wait? Was kind of my reaction. They're like, tell me next week. I'm having this next week. So that that's another. I think uh, Americans take that for granted uh, the responsiveness of everybody. So we've talked about the things you noticed about America when you came here. And I read that one of those differences was our reluctance to talk about politics and religion 
because those conversations have a greater possibility to upset or even destroy relationships. And that was the 1990s, long before today's divisions. You concluded this avoidance limited our connection to our own communities and even kept us from solving problems. As I mentioned, the divisions are much deeper today than they were back then. Can we ever mend those divisions? And if so, how? Well, I think that, you know, right now, the loudest voices have the megaphones, right? The algorithm and social media favor really provocative interactions and conflict. The media doesn't sell uh, views by reporting good news uh, and and good weather. It's it's always bad news. So everything needs to be bad. So I think that we as citizens of a community, we really need to make civic engagement a habit. We need to start attending town hall meetings, school board meetings, talking to each other. We need we need to have a seat at a table before the table is on fire or, or at least be a sounding board to those who are in places of position. So I feel like this one of the silver lining of COVID is that people realize the power of their local government and they start showing up. And, and I think that's what's going to mend those divisions is this silent majority to start getting engaged and and uh, and not being afraid of uh, engaging in deeper conversations uh, with people. So I'm hopeful. I, I think we are definitely on a, on a path. I think, you know, everything is a little bit of a pendulum swing. It gets worse before it gets better. Um, but but I think that if, if we don't shy away and play outreach, uh, I think we have uh, a chance of, of really finding uh, the right path, the middle path. Hopeful is something that uh, I think all of us have right now coming out the other side of COVID-19. And to your point, as we get re-engaged with our local communities, with society, with the economy and the workforce, uh, hopefully people realize, to your point, you know, the, the strength they have in their voice and their strength in numbers and getting more involved, getting more engaged in their communities, whether it be schools or local businesses or things like that. That's, to your point, really how we start this, you know, think national, act local. And that's how we get everything moving forward, both economically as well as in the political front. And, you know, you've heard the old saying of, I've got one mouth and two ears, and so shut your mouth and, and use your ears and listen to the person next to you. Uh, and hopefully we can have more of that uh, civil and civic engagement and dialogue going forward. You know, you mentioned earlier as well about how media doesn't sell good news. Uh, we had a guest on a month or so ago talking about the former president and CEO of CNN News. And in the beginning of COVID, they specifically left up in the bottom right corner of the screen the number of COVID cases that were rising and the death toll rising because that's what people wanted to see. It wasn't the yeah. positive. It wasn't the good. It was the negative. It was not the solution. It was not the how right. we're bouncing back. It's it's the negative. It's the yep. worst case scenario. It wasn't flattening the curve. It was just showing what those numbers yeah. are going up. Yeah, and it was not the, the treatments, the, the things that actually work. Yep. Um, so that's unfortunate. So let's talk but about something. We have to demand it. So. Yes, Absolutely. And let's switch gears and talk about something a little bit more positive than negative media. So one of your passions, you co-founded the Policy Circle, which is now, I believe, in 42 states and four countries. Could you tell us about the Policy Circle? How did you get started and why? Yeah, thank you. So I started this in my living room. I came back from a conference and uh, and uh, I realized, I'm like, you know what? I want to go back to uh, taking the time to understand the issues, understand the impact of government public policy in our communities and, and how it advances or not um, solutions to, to major issues that, that we face, such as poverty, uh, crime, jobs, uh, workforce development. Right. And um, so so I, I started this in uh, in my living room. Uh, I brought together, you know, some some neighbors. And uh, and then from there, there was a real interest and it kind of grew. And I met two women, Angela Brawley and Kathy Hubbard, who are my co-founders. Uh, they're based in Indiana. And they were actually the one who said, you know, we're, they were experiencing something similar in Indiana. And they were the one who said, you know, we want to create something that is impactful, that is lasting, that is a tool, a gift for women to build their confidence to engage in the public policy dialogue. That's how it, it really started. And then as we started to see circles all over the country, we realized, well, this is this is more than just education and 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 learning. This is people are learning to connect the dots. They're 
broadening their network tremendously and uh, across not only industry, but also within uh, government. And uh, it drove people to action. It drove people to find allies to uh, to take action. And uh, and then we started seeing women encouraging each other to, to engage further uh, in, in local um local politics and, and, and local uh, agencies. So, so it really evolved and um, and it's been an exciting, a really exciting growth. And I, I started it and now we have a real team. Um, we have a new executive director, Stacey Blakely, who's based in, in Dallas. I transitioned to being a board chair, we expanded our board. Uh, so it's exciting to see something that started, you know, really organically to grow into something real and, and a, a model that is also adapt that people can adopt um, in whatever, however they define community. So we had someone, for instance, uh, from Tunisia who experienced the policy circle with other policy circle members in, in Washington, D.C., um, and she took the model back to Tunisia and established a, uh, an, a, a nonprofit to build a coalition amongst all the different groups that want to advance uh, policy for, for women. So it's, it's, it's amazing. So it's been, uh, I feel really blessed and, and I feel like it's my destiny here. So. Well, recently I had the privilege of you know, meeting with yourself and your executive director and other staff at Robin Klein and just seeing what you're about, what you're building, what you have built and, you know, hats off and kudos to you. It's a tremendous platform uh, and we'll get more into that here, but I mean, I just wanted to congratulate you on that early six, well, six years now, but uh, that the success you've had so far, congratulations. To you yeah. The, the years really fly. I mean, thanks. Thank you for saying that. And the years just really go by really, really quickly. And, and, you know, we, we purposely chose an organic growth. It could have gone and tried to go like really big, but we wanted to fine tune the model and develop the model in such a way that, that um, women, we can meet women where they are. Women are working. Then we're like, all right, this is really applicable to affinity groups. It's applicable. You can take this in the office. You could use it to build your network across different lines of business to expand your understanding of macro factors that impact how your business evolves. So we are, we're constantly changing and, and growing. So it's a true platform and a springboard for women to really launch their, um, their career uh, and, and you know, their future chapters. So what is it about fostering and promoting the free market economy that is so important to you, especially at a time when so many people are suggesting it just doesn't work anymore? Yeah, you know, I think that's a, that's a heavy question. But, you know, the free market is really an economic system. And at its core, uh, it unleashes human creativity, right? It allows the, the best to emerge through the demand, competition, innovation. And uh, right now, there, we can't say that there's pure free market. There's so many rules, regulations everywhere. And, and I think everyone agrees it's not a perfect system. But when you think of the alternative, that's far from perfect also, right, where everything is centrally controlled. It requires, I think, people to trust each other. It's, it's a system that is based on, on trust. So I think that's why it's really important, because once we lose that, we lose the, our society and we lose our ability. And, and it's also a system that has lifted out of abject poverty and despair millions of people. You know, since 1970, I think the, the world's worst poverty, like people living on $1 or less a day, has fallen by 80% thanks to the, the free enterprise system. So, you know, it's, it's still something that works. And, uh, and I think we need, to, uh, we need to work to defend it. The, the other piece is that it's critical to keep in mind. I think the more limitations, the more rules, regulations, the more we let the government pick the winners and the losers, the less space there is for entrepreneurship, for innovation, for the small business, the minority-owned business, the women-owned business, new ideas to emerge, to become reality, and, and ultimately to improve our lives. So, um, so I think that's why it's, it's really important, and it needs to be at the core of every conversation. Every public policy needs to be evaluated with and having in mind, well, what is going to be the impact on, on creativity, on entrepreneurship? Um, of having these rules in place or these programs in place. So that's why I think it's so important. So pivoting a moment to public policy you just mentioned, there are a record number of women in Congress and the U.S. Senate, yet they still only make up 27% of the total number of members. 
We hear various reasons for that gap and the lack of women in public office, but what do you believe are the reasons and what's it going to take to achieve parity? Yeah, thank you for, for um, stating the statistics because, you know, every time you talk about women in politics, people are always like, well, there's lots of women in politics and they are naming different people and, you know, and then, but when you look at the numbers, they're just not there. And, uh, and I think like, first, the more role models there is, the more women in public, the more there's women in public service, I think the more women will decide to make holding office part of their life journey. Um, I like to think of women's life in chapters, anybody's life, but I'm concerned about women. There's, there's many chapters, and I think public service should become one chapter of, of everyone's life. I think also with the um, you know silver lining again of the pandemic is that for women is that the office was moved into the living room, and everyone shared uh, this this juggling life, um, public you know juggling work, juggling family life, and so juggling per public service and family life became really real, and people saw their representatives doing it, saw everybody doing it. So I think it, it just makes it so much more accessible. And with technology, with just the leaps and bounds that we've made just in this last year, I think it will be much easier, it will become easier for women to, to serve uh, without having to necessarily travel as much to a central location. If we could, I think, change that, I think it will be good, better for everyone. Um, so so I, think, I think that's what it's going to take is more, more women there and, uh, and then maybe more flexibility in ways that we can, uh, we can serve. I know this is going to require you to generalize a bit, but what do you think women bring to the public policy table that men don't, or at least the men bring a lesser amount? Uh, well, first, you know, women are 50% of the population, right? When you think about that, you're like, well, you want to have 50% of your population of that gender be represented. And it's almost like try speaking without, with only 50% of your words, right? You don't make any sense. So I think it's this is where it's helpful to turn to global development, uh, where it was found that there's no policy that can be effective without involving women, because women tend to work across party line to be highly responsive to constituent concerns, to community concerns, to be able to listen to, to all constituents. Um, they also help secure lasting peace, and then you know they encourage citizens' confidence in in democracy through you know, their own participation. And I think a lot of time women prioritize health, education, um, you know, and economic indicators like jobs um, to, to advance. So I, I think it's more of a, a representation. And, and I, I want to just say, you know, right now our troops are leaving Afghanistan, right? We have men making decisions about our troops retreating from Afghanistan, which shows little concern, I think, for the dark future that they're leaving behind for women and girls who made so much advances and since 2001 uh, in education and their roles in, in government um, everywhere and, and we're leaving them behind uh, and, uh, and and those gains will be lost and we I don't feel that right now I don't feel there's, there's that voice is not represented right of defending women so I, I think that's why it's it's so important um, and uh, yeah as it all great. You encourage women to start their own policy circles. How should they go about doing that? Yeah, well, first we have a website. It's called thepolicycircle.org. And uh, there's really three ways that people can participate. Right? One is we offer monthly uh, virtual programming that we call Move the Needle. So the policy circle, the idea is that you engage in a, in a conversation about a public policy issue. You don't do that in a vacuum or just bringing what you think or a newspaper article. You um, do that by reviewing a brief that the organization publishes. We call it the policy brief, policy circle brief. And, um, and, and you use that to be informed and to discuss. Each brief comes with a guide and a discussion guide. And, uh, and the guide leads you also to further action. So the move the needle... The virtual programming is a way for us to launch the brief, uh, model the conversation, the priorities around, you know, the a specific issue. We just had one on mental health, for instance. And, uh, and then when you decide you want to host this conversation, 
on the website again, you can just click start a circle. And we recommend that you do that with two or three other people in your workplace or uh, you know, in an affinity group or in your community, in your neighborhood. Uh, so, so it's very easy to do that. And we have a team member who uh, will onboard you and help you um, through the first step. The library of briefs is available online when you sign up. We also have a third way that uh, people can engage. Is we found that uh, people want to uh, establish themselves as civic leaders in their community. So we've created this virtual workshop that is called the Civic Engagement Leadership Roadmap. And you join a cohort of about 30, 40 women uh, from around the country. And you go through vir virtual policy circles, but also you have to do things. Uh, like you have to attend town hall meetings, you have to interact with uh, local officials, a representative, you have to essentially find your focus in, in your community. So there's three ways to interact with the organization. So meet people okay. where they are. So again, it's thepolicycircle.org. And even if people don't want to start their circle, I highly recommend you visit the site because there's just a wealth of information on there on different issue briefs. You mentioned mental health. I know there's been some other things you focused on. And it's just a, a very well done website. So just highly recommend thepolicycircle.org. So along those lines, what is your ultimate hope or goal for the women who participate in policy councils? And um, yeah, in the policy circle, well, I first of all, the policy circle it gives women a starting point. So my hope, my vision is that wherever you are moving to, you're coming into a new community, you'd want to go to the policy circle, perhaps join the civic leadership roadmap. So you start to build your network and then uh, really start a circle or initiate uh, some conversations in, uh, in, in your community and the school and at your work. So, so that would be, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the goal is that it becomes really well known, a good starting point. And the hope for people who participate, and we are seeing that we're collecting, you know, a few hundreds of stories of impact, is that people are, women become, are not afraid to speak up, to raise their hands, to, to volunteer, to participate in task force, in commissions, to, uh, to be constructive leaders uh, in, uh, in our community. We've been talking to Sylvia Leger Ricketts, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with Sylvia J. Ricketts, philanthropist, entrepreneur, health advocate, public policy activist, wife, and parent of three children. That's a long resume, Sylvie. You're busy. So, Sylvie, it's been said that you feel the same pressures that all parents do. How do we leave the world a better place for our children? Now, obviously, the answer may be a bit of a moving target, but have you settled on an answer to that question? Um. I, I think I, I have uh, one of the uh, the answer to that question. I think is to start small, right? Let's try to change like one life at a time. Uh, there is a great book uh, called Mountain Beyond Mountain by Tracy Kidder, who tells the story of Paul Farmer, who uh, changed world health policy on tuberculosis treatment by just focusing on Haiti and the uh, the, the poorest town a village in, in the poorest country of the world. And uh, and I think that's how you make the world a better place is you don't start big, but you start small and, and uh, you start with with uh, where you are and changing one life. That's what I've settled on. Yeah, you, you say uh, start small and go from there. I mentioned in a few shows um, ago that, um, you know, I was raised by a single mom and like you with your, your parents, they're just sort of, they were my foundation and she was my foundation. And the one thing that to this day, still resonates with me that my mother used to tell me is we might not be able to change the world today, but we can change the world around us. And to your point, it's something as simple as and small as that is going to help your neighbor, a friend, someone down the street, someone in your church, your temple, your community. And from there, it's, it just uh, snowballs, you know, and, and people from, from our generation, I remember the old Clairol commercial where if you tell two people and they tell two people and so on and so on, all of a sudden your TV screen went from two people to 64 people in a matter of seconds. And so, uh, I, I love that concept. Yeah, and I think we forget about it because you know the media. Once again, you know the media, the social media, uh, the global connection, which is real and fantastic. However, we forget that it really starts down the street and 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 what you do uh, in in your community and for your neighbors and, and just one life that that you want to change. So I, I think it's, that's been my um, conclusion on my life lesson. But yeah. You know, and thank you for sharing that because, as you know, this show is focused on empowerment and well-being and your well-being and your empowerment is only as strong as you and your community. And so, you know, if, again, if we can keep going from that grassroots level and build from there, you know, we're going to make this place a better place and leave it a better place. So thanks for sharing that insight. You know, Sylvie, we met through the generosity, your generosity to Soldier Strong, uh, an organization I co-founded to connect military veterans with revolutionary technology to help them, help them take their next steps forward in life. Sometimes there are little steps forward through the use of such devices as an exoskeleton that helps people who have experienced spinal injuries or strokes literally stand up and walk again. So many people appreciate your generosity more than words can say, but you also took a very strategic approach to your contribution that impressed me more than you can imagine. Instead of simply being satisfied with helping veterans, which is a huge thing in itself, you connect the dots between helping veterans with revolutionary technology and educating students about STEM. How did you develop that ability to see the big picture, to see opportunities by connecting the dots? And how would you recommend someone who wants to get better at that skill go about doing it? Well, thanks. I mean, thanks for what you do and Soldier Strong, and I think it's phenomenal. I saw um, the exoskeleton being uh, used by, uh, by a veteran at an event, and it was incredible how uh, this person felt empowered. Uh, felt uh, so proud of being able to to function, to stand, to help, to uh, to do dishes. So it was just I was just amazed, and and it's so aligned with this idea of like this is at some point this type of 
uh, device will be so perfected and, and available to anyone with spinal cord injury. I feel like it's like the, the Palm Pilot, like back, I feel it's, you know, like those first devices that, that help you keep a calendar online. And now look at what we can do with a, an iPhone. I feel it's exactly, that's the trajectory of the, um, the exoskeleton. So, so that's, to me, that's really, um, really exciting. Uh, the other piece, you know, when I when I saw this connection, what what I appreciate about this device is that it combines everything. It combines uh, medical, so physical therapy, the medical aspect. It's user interface because uh, Tiger will be using it, uh, using his cell phone, and then it's robotics, it's engineering. So it's it's all of the fields. And and when I saw that, I'm like, wow, this is really something that brings it all together for for kids. To see that if I study in STEM, I can really, STEM is not just one thing, it, it brings it all together and I can really change life. Technology can change life. And, and I felt that this, this uh, suit and uh, Tyler talking about it and then seeing him wearing it and the excitement would, would just be the great messenger, I think, for that. And uh, so I'm hoping um, that the person who, who will be wearing the, the exoskeleton will be able to go to the schools in around Memphis, around his town, to, uh, to be able, and then something we'll work on, but to be able to demonstrate it, to see how it works and encourage people to consider uh, a career in, uh, in STEM, but also encourage the teachers in that school to train the kids so that they can actually um, succeed in a technology program, whether it's in community college or in, in university. So I feel it could be a catalyst to really change the trajectory uh, of its school towards excellence. Uh, so, and that's how I see it. And disability, you know, and this is kind of how um, I kind of think, you know, you have to always trust that you're building something bigger and you always have to try to connect the dots, right? from seeing someone walking, standing up from a wheelchair to walking, say, hey, this could inspire others. So I think the way you connect the dots is you always have to think that you're you're building something big, you're part of something bigger than yourself, and how can you be a spark for others is the other way that, that you can see a bigger picture. And for our listeners and viewers, uh, you heard Sylvie reference Tyler a few times. And Tyler is the veteran that will be the beneficiary and recipient of Sylvia and her family's uh, generous donation of an exoskeleton, which we will be uh, unveiling the surprise uh, sometime next month. Uh, but Sylvia, also you mentioned about you know having Tyler and other ambassadors out there going to schools, showing how the technology works. You know, it, it, I think it's just a phenomenal idea and something so simple because it's one thing to learn about science and STEM through textbooks, but when you can actually see it, feel it, touch it understand how it works, how when I do this, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it benefits the individual. There's so much more to learning in that, that capacity, that way than just reading out of a textbook and taking a test in, in three weeks on, on that stuff. And so, again, thank you for that vision, because hopefully that can be uh, a new business model for us going forward as we look to, to promote the technology and to get more hands uh, of veterans and also to, uh, I'll say, Main Street citizens as well as need this. Um, yeah. You know, Obviously, our organization is just focused on one part of the population. Um, but it's something that could benefit a much broader population. And so, uh, again, thank you for your vision in terms of how we can get that more visible and out there and more people learning about it. So early in the show, I mentioned that the Ricketts family owns the Chicago Cubs. You're from Canada and grew up with hockey, which is a very different sport. How long did it take for you to get used to baseball and appreciate it as a fan? Well, I first had to get over how long the games are, right? That was my biggest <laughs> hurdle. I was like, so do we. You, spend, you always spend like four hours in the ballpark on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon when I could be running a half marathon. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then I learned uh, the game and the excitement. And, you know, after a World Series win, how can you not be a fan, right? So I think, uh, you know, I, I always go like full in, you know, it's became uh, part of our family and, uh, you know, going to opening day, going to games, uh, going to various events became part of our life. So it was easy to adopt and, and become a fan. So appreciation and passion are two very different emotions altogether. You seem to bring a tremendous passion to everything you do. How long did it take for you to develop your passion for baseball? And what is it about the sport that sparks that passion? 
Well, in uh, 2013, I went to Cooperstown when uh, Ron Tanto was elected to the Hall of Fame. And it was a tremendous experience to learn about the history of baseball across the country, the, the passion in all of the communities. And I also, um, you know, as part of being uh, with the Cubs, I had the immense pleasure of meeting and interacting with Ernie Banks, who is also a legend. And um, Ernie was such uh, a nice man, a genuine, he took genuine interest in people and he was really fun loving. So, you know, I, I had the chance to meet players, meet legends, uh, visit Cooperstown, so really witness and feel uh, the passion. And, and also to just discover the early personality of the Cubs, um, who just love the game, love to play. And, uh, and I feel like that's what baseball is about is loving loving the game and that's what life is about right you have to love love the game and and uh i feel like there's just a genuine love of the game and the people who are part of it in baseball and uh, that that is unique in my opinion when you talk about the love of the game and and you and i've spoken several times in this i'm somebody who loves the game i'm fascinated by your perspective of baseball you say baseball is bigger than a ballpark and you believe in the power of sports to enable people and communities to achieve their greatest potential. So we see that from athletes' performance. How does that sport enable communities to achieve more? Well, you know, there's several things, right? Uh, first off, you know, one dimension of baseball is that it's really a call for engagement of the whole family, right? In in uh, it's a really a large area in a community. It's a big baseball field. It's open to everyone of all ages. Anyone can go, can watch the game. So it's it's really accessible. It becomes a full family activity. And then when you think about baseball league, little leagues, it really relies on dads to coach, to run the league, and uh, the whole family to kind of crisscross the states to bring their kids who are playing in these games. So it's a, it's a full like engagement. And then teams are sponsored, local teams are sponsored by local businesses. And um, so it becomes part of the fabric of the community at a really local level. Uh, for the Cubs, you know, we have a, we we have a group that's responsible for for the community engagement, and we actually produce a report on community benefits. So we really engage with our neighbors, and it's part of our core values is to be a good neighbor. Um, because because the Cubs is such a Wrigley Field is an icon, and and we've worked really hard to. Uh, continue to improve the neighborhood and make it a place uh, for everyone. But the last thing I'd add, you know, is is also about what's unique about baseball is that um, it just brings everybody together across across generations, across abilities, people uh, with with uh, people with um, mental disabilities, with developmental disabilities, with physical disabilities can participate and attend the game. So it's, it's one of the sports that's just so accessible. So you've mentioned passion several times throughout our conversation today. What sparks your passion for the causes that you champion and how can others develop passion if they're lacking in it? I think the first part is really to be curious. You have to be curious and have a willingness to expand your knowledge about a variety of topic or issues that's going on in your community. And the policy circle is all about that, being, is being curious. And, and to just see see a spark and an interest in something as just a starting point, just very much like, you know, Tyler and uh, what will strong, soldiers strong with uh, the, the exoskeleton, right? That just sparked that as technology, the starting point, and then it connected me to the people and then the organization around it. And I think that's how you develop a passion and you have to really stay focused and, and start connecting the, the dots between what your strengths are, what your values are, uh, what the solutions are, and, and then the, the, the industry, the community, the businesses, and, uh, and that's how you, 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 you become a champion for a cause or, or become passionate. I think it all starts with curiosity uh, is really the starting point and, and being willing to expand your comfort zone. So if you'll bear with me, we'll stick with the Cubs for another minute or two. Your family owned a huge innovative national company, TD Ameritrade, that has recently merged with Charles Schwab. You all own the Chicago Cubs. It seems so incongruous that you and your husband used to own a bicycle shop outside of Chicago. Now, I know you're an advocate of healthy lifestyles. Is that simply the reason or is there more to the story than that? 
Well, um, you know, I discovered I, I am passionate about a healthy lifestyle and exercise. Uh, I discovered running when I really, when I came to the U.S., um, a fellow student was training for a marathon. I had no idea what that was. And I started running marathons and I actually ran uh, 40 miles on my 40th birthday. So I played a little bit with ultra, but I'm not going to go there and I tried <laughs> triathlons. So, um, you know, and, and running allowed me to, to feel part of a community and gave, it became part of my identity outside of work. Um, and when our local bike shop, uh, the owner suddenly passed away and the bike shop was going to close, my husband Todd and his college roommate decided to save it. And, uh, and then, you know, I'm always all in, <laughs> whatever the project, uh, I became curious, I raised the opportunity. So I became a cyclist. And also my dad, you know, was a cyclist. So it, it felt very much full circle for me. Uh, so I became part of the activities of the shop. I uh, started a women's cycling group. I organized cycling clinics. I, uh, we, we, I did a hundred mile ride. I, you know, we participated in cyclocross. I did that. Uh, so I became a, a real cyclist and, um, and, and then it connects, you know, it connects with everything because we're a sports family. So true to form, again, you've connected the dots that many people wouldn't even imagine between your bicycle shop, a major league baseball team, the Cubs, and an international nonprofit, World Bicycle Relief. It's a great story. Would you share that with us, please? Uh, you know, when we opened the shop, we invited the owners of SRAM, which is a bicycle, it's a Chicago-based company that makes bike components. And uh, they uh, they came to one of our events and their foundation is called World Bicycle Relief. They build with Trek, they built a bike that can be used by healthcare workers and uh, school children to use and, and be able to, to go and reach uh, towns that are unreachable by foot. So it really allowed people to expand their, their reach and, and stay in school for some of them. So we um, uh, we asked them to sponsor the, the bike valet at Wrigley to be to be part of the bike valley at Wrigley. Um, and uh, and then that that became part of the you know the relationship a little bit with World Bicycle Relief and getting to know that amazing organization. Uh, and it brought the two together, right? Baseball and bicycles. And then I biked to Wrigley from uh, from the from the suburbs a few times to use the bike valet. So, um, yeah, that's kind of that's the story. So we mentioned earlier you have your own podcast. It's called the Civic Leader, and you're frequently sought after as a speaker focused on leadership and civic engagement. How do people find you on your podcast? Yeah, it's called thecivicleader.com, and uh, it's uh, our goal is really to inform on public policy using the policy circle brief. Uh, so I go through the brief and also interview a civic leader that's acting uh, in, in that space that provides uh, more flavor, personal flavor, and real-life experience. So it's a, it's a podcast that is uh, growing and then developing. So thank you for, uh, for mentioning that. And that's the civicleader.com, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right. Just want to get that out there again for you. So you're involved in engaging women in policy. You have your podcast. You're a sought-after speaker. I know how busy you are, but have you given any thought to writing a book, either on policy or technology or something else, being a mom in today's world? Well, thank you for asking. I actually um, did write a book, and we're about to publish it. And uh, this fall, it's kind of in the last... Uh, revision and the title of the book is Trust Your Voice, A Roadmap to Focus and Influence. So it's um, it's a roadmap to of some of the life lessons learned of um, just how do we, um, how, how do you develop your confidence to find focus, to engage a little bit of what we talked about and uh, and have confidence in yourself to, uh, to be even, uh, to achieve your full potential. So you've literally taken what we talked about earlier and taken pen to paper and, and written chapters about your life. I did. Well, yes, it's, it's not really about, it's about the policy circle and kind of the lessons I extracted from the policy circle, you know, uh, some things around, um, uh, you, you know, how you could, you're building something bigger than yourself, you know, the trusting that your voice will spark others, because I think that really gives you a lot of confidence to engage, trusting your mind and spirit, uh, the network that you're on. So, so it's a, it's a guide for mentoring mentoring yourself or mentoring others each of the chapters could be used as a mentoring topic 
Um, and, uh, and then there's a framework that we developed on expanding your influence, develop public policy, like what should you take into account? Uh, so it's a combination of uh, stories, um, example, inspiration, and, uh, and the policy circle. You mentioned mentoring earlier on the show, and now you touched on it here in your book. Is there any mentor or one or two mentors that really stick out in your life that have helped you become who you are today? Um, yeah, you know, one uh, mentor in, uh, that, that I had in, um, when I started my career work and actually the person who uh, really allowed me to uh, apply and, uh, and, and do the master's in computer science at, at Northwestern, um, you know, early on, this person could have done nothing, right, to, to help me, but he decided to actually go to bat for me, go to bat as a partner in the office. Uh, to say, yeah, we think that she should participate in this program. Uh, help me write the letters. So I think like you have, you need to have people. And then while building the posse circle, um, you know, I have to say uh, several friends that I've met and people who have believed and supported the organization, uh, I think have been like tremendous, uh, tremendous to validate the path to maybe redirect you uh, and, and to push you to the next level, I think are, are key mentors. My co-founders are key mentors uh, to, to really have an impact and, and keep your focus. I think that's what mentors are about. So it makes you feel a little more confident about yourself. <laughs> and it's to your point, you know, what you've been doing is just continue to learn, continue to expand and just bring in new mentors and, and more people into your circle to, to broaden your knowledge. And so uh, kudos to you and again, your organization for, for what you're doing. So do you have any party advice for audience about how they can feel more empowered, lead through adversity and achieve their goals? You know, I heard the phrase, um, raise your gaze and uh, see the forest through the, through the trees so that then you can kind of zoom in and find your focus and, and go deep, I think is, is how uh, you achieve your goals. And uh, I feel like that's, that's how you feel more empowered because you know what you're doing, what you're about. And, and that's also how you are impactful because you're actually achieving things. So, so that would be my parting advice of being the trees to the forest and raising your gaze so, and being focused. Sylvia Leger Ricketts, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for having me. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chrismeekpublicfigure and on Twitter at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.